Hello and welcome to another episode of Today in Space. I am your space podcast host from the East Coast, Alex Girofanos. And there's a lot to catch up on just in this last weekend, but since our last episode, we were going to see if we could wait for the Starship SpaceX SN9 launch. They're having issues. We'll talk about that in a sec. We're also hoping to get the Starlink launch. Uh, Starlink 16, that's going to be launching early as tomorrow. Uh, Tuesday, we're recording this on Monday here of this week. But there's a lot of important stuff we've got to talk about and get you caught up on so you know the latest of what's going on in the space industry. A little SpaceX, a little Virgin Galactic in orbit, a little NASA and space launch system. Let's dive right in, folks. Thanks for joining us. First up on our list, we have to talk about the NASA SLS four-engine burn that they did for the Space Launch System, which was a really important start of tests to verify the engines before the Artemis 1 launch, which would be basically a robotic mission. The same stuff that you would send the astronauts in, the Orion capsule, the, the same hardware you'd send up with the Space Launch System to take a trip around the moon and come back. NASA did this uh, way back, we, we did an episode of this back in the day, of the actual trip of Orion. I think it's been five years, if I have my time right, since that launched. Uh, and it, it launched aboard a different rocket, uh, not the SLS, because it just wasn't ready yet. But it did this trip around the moon, gave NASA data so they could build on, right? This is the same thing that SpaceX did recently with the Starship, right? Starship SN8. It crashed <laughs> and blew up, but they got valuable data, and that is what this game is all about. You hope it doesn't blow up, but if it does blow up, you still, or something doesn't happen, the test and go is planned, if you're still able to extract good data from that and move to the next step, that's really important. And so that's what this four-engine SLS test fire was supposed to do. What I'm going to do is go to the article here so we can talk some specifics about this actual event and really explain like why this is so important. All right, so for those that don't know, these four engines are actually the RS-25 engines that powered the space shuttle. So it's a really cool use of NASA reusing technology from years past to now send us to the next step. Now, this original SLS was really supposed to happen years and years ago. It obviously took longer. We talk about that ad nauseum here. But just think about how long that engine has has been there. 2011 was when we retired the space shuttle. And so from 2011 to now 2021, we're really, they, they've been fired before, but this is 10 years before the last real use of that engine. So they were trying to make sure that they turned this thing on, they had the amount of time they wanted to run for, which was 485 seconds, just over eight minutes. And that was going to be the amount of time that it was going to be burning for flight. So basically test the engines for how long they would fire during the flight so that you're ready to go for the test launch, right? And they, they have a series of tests they want to do for this. But they only were able to launch, uh, to fire those engines for 60 seconds. There was a uh, an engine shutdown uh, during the flight. They were actually, the flight controllers were saying that there was an MSC, which is a major com- component failure. Uh, some people noticed a flash on the actual live stream of that, of the video footage of the firing. And there's a lot more questions than there are answers. Now, the NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine still sounds very hopeful, as he always does, which we do appreciate his statesmanship and, and being a good leader. But you gotta ask, how much data did they get? And that's what they're gonna figure out. In 60 seconds, did they have enough data to figure out whether something was good? Did the 10 years of downtime between when the RS-25 engines were built to now has that made a big difference you know is is have those parts just been out too long i doubt that um is it it, these are a bunch of questions right so folks this is this is me going off the top of my head sharing some some 
initial thoughts that require more investigation. I'm, I'm <laughs> these are these are minimal questions, barely a hypothesis, shouldn't be taken too seriously, but important things to guide our next questions as we wait to hear what's coming. Ten years is a long time, and you, and you also got to think about the people that are working at NASA, too. Anyone that's worked at a company for an extended period of time has seen layoffs, especially during this COVID era. Um, you got to ask, what's happened in ten years at NASA? Are the people that uh, built those engines still working on those engines? Are those procedures for those engines up to date, or are we still using the same procedures from ten years ago? Are the people at NASA completely relearning how to do this for SLS, which it seems they're doing so at least from a, a lifting of hardware, right? The, the example I'm using, I went back and I listened to our tour of the vehicle assembly building that uh, our guide there, who was amazing, and it's available on our YouTube page if you want to check that out, talked about how they basically had to relearn everything with SLS because they just hadn't been lifting things in in that long. And so they're they had to basically relearn. So how much of this 10-year gap is now making NASA relearn, which is then causing this long, drawn-out delay of how long things are going to happen? Now, they had planned for this 2021 for Artemis 1 to happen, to keep in line for their landing on the moon in 2024 with the first woman and next man to step foot on the surface of the moon. This definitely could throw some stuff into the gears and slow things down, but we'll have to find out. Are they comfortable? One of the things they were discussing was, are they comfortable going from the Stennis Space Center saying, hey, we got the data we needed from this test launch, send the engines back down to Florida, and we'll do another test down there before the launch to make sure everything's good. Maybe all they need to do is replace a component. Maybe this is something they saw in the previous years with the space shuttle, and they have a fix that, that seemed to work. These are all things they're working out behind the scenes that we're going to find out in the future. But definitely a historical moment in this next space race, and one of those events that could seriously delay, time-wise, the actual Artemis mission of 2024. But the good thing, and this is not the same back with the old space race, but in Space Race 2.0, we don't have to rely on one single piece of technology bringing us to the moon. There are lots of things happening in the background. And that's what brings us to our next topic with Virgin Orbit. Virgin Orbit, which is part of the Virgin Group, which is, of course, Richard Branson's company. Virgin Orbit is specifically suited for sending small payloads and satellites into orbit. So basically supplying a way for people who need to get into space to actually be able to do that in, in an affordable way. And it uses a much different approach than we're used to, which is using its aircraft, Cosmic Girl, which looks just like you'd expect one of your commercial airliners to be flying in, but custom and modified so that it can drop this Launcher 1, which is essentially a missile, <laughs> and, and launch it horizontal to the Earth and then tilt the engine up as it flies up into orbit. Now, this really takes a lot of the problems of, you know, launching something from the very bottom of the Earth and having to go up against gravity at its most difficult, right, straight up, right? That's why when a rocket goes up, it ends up tilting because it needs to break out. The cool thing about this Launcher 1 is that they had the technology with Virgin Airlines, right? So they, he had already been, been involved with aircraft. They kind of tested all that stuff. Virgin Airlines gets sold. They move towards Virgin Orbit, which is doing the small payload stuff, and then Virgin Galactic, 
which is focusing more on space tourism and low Earth orbit science experiments that really only need to be in zero gravity or a minimal gravity environment for a small amount of time, which is a lot of experiments. It cuts the cost for them to actually send this stuff into space to actually do the experiments they're looking for, develop new drugs, test new uh, ways of, of doing things in zero G, providing an environment to test in. Uh, and then, of course, tourism. Virgin has been at this for a really long time, and it's really cool to see them succeed. It was cool to learn more about some of the people that are behind this, that have been developing this rocket technology for basically a decade. And, and, and that that's how this industry is, man. Aerospace and space, it is a long, it takes you a long time to go places. And it's that five-year, ten-year mark that you really see some of these amazing things happen. So a huge congratulations to the Virgin Orbit team and everyone involved in that. All of this stuff is going to be combining together as we move forward as options to go into space. So we don't end up in a situation where we did in 2011 where we get rid of the space shuttle and then our basically our only option to space for humans is gone. We've got a lot of things sprouting right, right now while NASA's dealing with some setbacks, but other things are happening. And of course, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, but Starship... That's going to be the next real big step forward in sending human beings into space and around the solar system, specifically Mars and the moon. With Starship, it could be up to 100 people potentially, which is far and beyond the amount of human payload that could actually be sent into space. So it really brings the idea of colonization and sending an entire colony of people somewhere in one go instead of it being a very long and drawn-out process. Uh, and, And one of the interesting things that Robert Zubrin brought up a, 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 an aerospace engineer who's part of the Mars Society and has written many books, some that I still have to read, but this idea that Starship could be this this spaceship that not only is the craft that gets you there, but is also big enough to sustain people for that to be the colony, right? Where Starship is the building that you bring with you and the ability for you to go back. So you don't have to necessarily build an entire Mars colony to go to Mars and send people there and bring them back. So, again, it's all theoretical until Starship actually starts flying to the moon and testing out there. But there's a lot of really good stuff. Now, we talked about this before. SN9 got delayed. They were replacing Raptor Engine 44. Uh, There's some amazing pictures we shared on our Facebook group, Today in Space podcast. Uh, And, of course, those photographers who who are down in Boca Chica taking that, you could follow them. There's a whole bunch of great ones. We're sharing their stuff on Twitter as well. So if you want to check that out, Today in Space pod, definitely amazing stuff that they're doing. But that pretty much delays Starship until probably February because they've got to get a new engine in there. They were taking that engine out the end of last week, which means... I haven't seen a new engine come back in, and even if they did, they're going to need to do a static fire to actually make sure that that engine is working properly before they go for the launch again. So basically install, make sure it's working right, then launch. Our last topic really for this week, again, the launch we were hoping to cover this week, but should be happening tomorrow at 8.23 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is Tuesday, January 19th in Florida. It's going to be the SpaceX Starlink 16 launch. Another 60 Starlink satellites going up into orbit to deploy global internet services around the world. One of the interesting things, just to give you guys a Starlink update, because this is definitely a big problem for those that are new to this, 
Starlink poses an issue to ground-based astronomy, especially amateur astronomy, but any astronomy that's looking to grab a nice large field of view through their telescope to look into the skies and take an exposure picture to get enough light in to really show what's there. A Starlink satellite with all, what is it, 12,000 of them that'll be up there, a lot of satellites, if someone has taken that exposure shot and that satellite comes through, it's bright enough to leave a nice bright streak through that image, basically rendering you useless. Now, we've been challenging this idea and really diving into what the issues are. We had the episode where we talked to the CAO of Ionis, Cyril, who's obviously in astronomy, in is selling a product for that exact group that would be affected. It's very interesting to hear his thoughts on that and how his company looks to survive that. And, and, and it's a very interesting episode. Please go listen to that. We'll have that link in this week's episode if you want to go look that up. And if you're on YouTube, that link is right here. But the good thing is we're seeing people try and solve this problem, right? And one of the great things that SpaceX has been doing has been publicly talking about the things they're putting out there to change the reflectivity on those satellites, right? To reduce how much the sun's reflection is creating uh, those streaks to affect ground-based astronomy. So um, there was two different options, and there's a link to the uh, to this research article that was written, a research paper, an article with the research paper link in there. The research paper is very interesting. It definitely shows that what they did did reduce the reflectivity of that satellite. And the author of the paper, who runs an observatory and did the test, said that he definitely sees promise in that. It's still affecting it, but there's still more and more ways that things can drive this reflectivity down and make it easier for people to be able to look at the stars while we also give global internet to to people that that need it. I'll, I'll just talk about some things. You know, the article, this is from Physics World. The title of the article is Dark-Coded Starlink Satellites Are Better But Not Perfect. The 1.05 meter Mirakabushi Telescope, Ishikakajima Astronomical Observatory, the IIO, they determined the dark site, the dark site, ooh, the dark sat model wavelengths and, and their brightness. So the first 60 satellites, this is what the original controversy of Starlink for astronomers, is that the original 60 satellites were seen to be 99% brighter than approximately 200 artificial objects that were previously visible with the naked eye. On the third round, SpaceX adjusted, this is January of January 7th of 2020, and they had the anti-reflective dark coding, the DarkSat program, and that's when the Mirikabushi telescopes system started doing the testing. And they even did it in a bunch of different bands of light, so green, red, and near-infrared as well, so that, you know, if you're not just looking necessarily for something that's invisible light, maybe you're looking for something else in a different wavelength, that's important too. So to break this down, the DarkSat program have the reflection of sunlight compared to the ordinary Starlink satellite. So, uh, marginally a really good improvement again 50 percent less bright but it could still definitely have an effect on astronomical observations from the earth so it's a good job mitigating the uv and optical region of the spectrum but the black coating actually raised the temperature on the dark sats because it's absorbing the light now because it's darker which then affects infrared readings and observations so not perfect in June and August of last year, SpaceX went ahead again with another adjustment and developed the VisorSat model, which actually literally put a visor in the way of the light that was coming in from the sun to reduce the reflectivity. And there's still more work to be done on how much better that is. It looks like it is even better than the DarkSat program, 
But one of the things that the scientists recommended changing was the actual height of the orbit. One of the other constellations that is a rival of SpaceX's Starlink is OneWeb. They're darker, and they're also at a much higher altitude, which means the higher they're out, the less reflectivity you're going to get from the sun. And so the question is, is there a competitive advantage for SpaceX to be lower? Are they able to provide, again, these are just thoughts, but are they able to provide a better service and provide higher speeds if they are closer to the Earth? And is that the thing that they're struggling with? But a very interesting look at what are the challenges of making this happen? And what I love that SpaceX is doing is they're working publicly with scientists who are putting out papers. SpaceX puts out something that says, we reduce the reflectivity. The scientist goes out and says, well, this is how much it affected it. And then they're able to then adjust within their company to provide something that people are looking for. And for everything that's happening, they are working with them. And this is this was the ultimate best case scenario that I had hoped for here, that we had hoped for with the podcast, is that SpaceX is very public with how they're doing a lot of their stuff, especially if you compare it to someone like uh, Blue Origin, that you basically know when it's going to launch the day of because they put out a post on it, but you don't know what they're working on otherwise. SpaceX is really suited towards these kind of changes, and it's good to see that there was such a huge margin in, in reducing their reflectivity just from the DarkSat program, and I'd like to see how that VisorSat program is doing. That was new. I didn't know about the VisorSat program, so it's cool to learn that. That's That's it. I mean, the, the last thing I'll say that I see that's good that's coming from SpaceX, especially in this Starlink perspective, we'll dive into this in a future episode, but they're doing a good job of providing use cases for the public, you know, as the marketing, you know, the marketing team's doing a good job. They're actually providing value and showing people how this internet service, this satellite constellation program is giving internet to people that just can't get it because they're too far away from being able to get it from you know, whatever tower or, or maybe their position isn't good. There was a link here in an article from the SpaceX group, uh, the pu- a public group on, on Facebook, because Starlink just got approved for use in the UK, and this person was breaking down what's going on in this article, and essentially SpaceX is providing an option for those people that have zero option to get internet, a really high speed, high throughput internet, like a lot of value for a price that's not terrible. It's actually achievable and doable if you want to get internet and you're not paying for something that's really not doing the job, right? You spend all this money to get internet and then you can't run multiple devices off of it. The good thing is that there's you're actually getting so much from Starlink that the price is actually worth it. So a really nice product and value they're providing to people and we just have to figure out the problem. This is the wonderful thing about engineering and science is now we have the problem. The problem is reduce the reflectivity so that it doesn't make observing the stars impossible and we're seeing progress so i want to share that i thought that was exciting so the uk just was given the green light for starlink uh, i know greece was just in, in the middle of a deal getting starlink satellites and internet for them because i as, as my family's from greece have been there having internet is not the easiest thing in the world you have to do a whole bunch of things that are not normal here to get it that would be amazing to not even have to worry about that. So that's it, folks. That's it for this week. Again, look forward to the Starlink 16 launch tomorrow out of NASA in Florida, Kennedy Space Center. Look for the updates basically on Starship SN9 as they swap out those Raptor engines, get them tested, and get ready for the next hop 
I'm looking forward to that. I would love to hear from you. I hope you're doing well. Let us know if you've got any topics you want us to cover here on the podcast. We've got a few more episodes coming up this month, and then we switch to completely covering Mars. We'll be talking about the missions that are going there, Perseverance rover, the Ingenuity copter that they're going to be testing. There's also missions from uh, the UAE and elsewhere. Basically, a whole bunch of stuff happening on Mars, and we'll talk about some futuristic sci-fi options of what could be possible on Mars and what's available today. That's it. Spread love, spread science. Be good. We'll see you next time for Today in Space.